Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we are talking about a very specific issue related to honeybee viruses and honeybee ability to handle those viruses. In fact, we are talking about a manuscript that we'll make sure and link in the show notes. The manuscript is entitled Context-Dependent Viral Transgenerational Immune Priming in Honeybees. That is a mouthful, but fortunately, we have one of the authors of that manuscript here today with us. He's actually showing up on our podcast a second time, and I just want to welcome to our podcast again, Dr. Mike Simone Finstrom. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So everyone, Mike is a research molecular biologist at the USDA ARS Honeybee Breeding and Physiology Laboratory in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mike, you and your colleagues published a very interesting paper that we really want to spend some time talking to you about. But before we get into that manuscript and talking about viruses and what transgenerational immune priming is in honeybees, could you could you remind the audience a little bit about yourself, how you got where you are? Yeah, so I'm a research scientist at Baton Rouge. I've been here since fall of 2015. Uh, I started off with uh, Marla Spivak in Minnesota, studying propolis and honeybee behavior, and you know, doing everything from um, you know understanding how physiology impacts behavior, and then I went to work with Dave Tarpey at NC State before coming here. Uh, so I've really gone, um, you know, to research everything from really hardcore bee behavior to, to bee genetics and queen quality. And, and since being here, I've really delved a lot of uh, work into honeybee viruses. Um, but all of my work really does encompass everything from sort of colony health dynamics to individual um, bee behavior and how all of those things um, really interplay. So I really like to cover um, everything from of the bee physiology and bee health to really how that affects uh, colony health uh, and really then, um, you know, the commercial beekeeping industry as a whole. Well, I'm excited for the in-person conferences to start coming back so I can sit down with you and pick your brain a little bit about everything you know. So we invited you today to talk about your paper that recently came out, and it discusses something called transgenerational immune priming. I have no idea what that means. So would you be able to explain uh, what that means for myself and for our listeners? Yeah, so transgenerational immune priming is, you know, in a way, it sounds like this really complicated process, and it kind of can be, but it's this really cool process that happens, you know, in humans. And it's amazing that it happens in insects as well. We're really understanding um, more and more about uh, how common it can be in insects. But it's one of these processes in terms of humans, how um, mothers can transfer some 
immune benefits um, as they're sort of breastfeeding, um, you know, the you know, children and transferring some immune properties um, through that process. Um, so basically, it's this idea that um, that one generation, so a parent, can transfer um, some immunity um, to their offspring. So that's that transgenerational, so cross-generation um, immune priming. So that's one generation priming or um, alerting the immune system of the next generation. And so really that's, um, that's this process of the, the parental generation kind of alerting and the immune system and basically prepping the immune system of their offspring um, to prepare for um, any diseases that they might be exposed to in the future. So Mike, in my experience behind every good research project, there's a really good story. So I know our listeners are out there thinking, okay, I understand transgenerational immune priming. And so parental exposure to some sort of pathogen to help them pass some sort of immunity onto their offspring potentially. But I, I just, I'm curious how you and your colleagues came up with the idea for this project. I mean, were you sitting around drinking coffee one day and said, Hey, let's look at transgenerational immune priming and honeybees. What, what prompted this study that we're talking about today? Yeah, that's a great question. So this was really the work of Sarah Lang who couldn't be here today. So this is Sarah Lang's um, master's thesis um, project. And uh, we kind of have been talking about this idea for a long time. And this is all part of this sort of larger work that we were doing as part of this uh, NEFA-funded grant, um, where we were injecting tons of pupa with viruses to look at how different um, different bee stocks, so uh, Russian honeybees or Pauline honeybees, Italian, Carniolan, we were looking at how different stocks of bees responded to viral infection. So one of our questions too, and that she was sort of coming up with was, well, how, you know, if these, sort of queens are exposed to virus, does that then affect their offspring differently? And kind of came up into these questions as questions of transgenerational immune priming. Uh, there had been very little studies on um, transgenerational immune priming with respect to, to viruses in, in general, uh, really. Um, they're um, been only uh, a couple of studies on it in honeybees at that point at all. Um, and so we thought this is a, a really, you know, straightforward thing that we could do that would really be interesting and worthwhile and could be a really cool and valuable uh, question to answer. Um, and so we were really excited by that question. Yeah. So you said that there, there wasn't much about viruses, but um, in your paper, you also were discussed the immune priming that had been shown for American foul brood. And so can you elaborate on this a little bit? Yeah. So 
the best evidence really certainly in honeybees and really excellent evidence for immune priming uh, in insects in terms of transgenerational immune priming um, has been shown for American valbrood and this is done by this European uh, group and they basically injected uh, honeybee queens with heat killed spores of American valbrood and what they found was that queens that were exposed to these heat-killed spores of American foulbrood, um, their offspring um, showed really good resistance, future exposure to, you know, challenges with the bacteria. So you basically, in a way, are vaccinating these queens um, by injecting them with American foulbrood and then um, you put them in a colony, uh, have them lay eggs, and then they in vitro reared. Um, so they raised um, larvae in the lab and then gave them live spores of American foulbrood. And they found really strong reductions in, in whether or not those larvae died from American foulbrood disease. So it was really cool. And then they actually found sort of how that happened, the mechanism of this. So they've continued to do that work with American Foulbrood and they're um, sort of continuing that work on. And I believe they have some patents in process. So they're they're really continuing that work um, and which is really exciting. Um, so I think there's some, some really cool work and efforts there. Um, now it's interesting, there's been some other work with other diseases like European Foulbrood that's found that it, it hasn't worked so well. So it's kind of interesting, mm -hmm. you know, why it works so well with American fabric in that context and not EFB. And, and I think even our study has shown some of this and that's why we have this long, complicated title, right? But I think there, there's some really interesting complications there that, um, that require some follow-up. That but is Amer so cool. Yeah, the American Fabric story, um, and they've had several publications now that um, it's it's a really cool story. So I have a really I have a really dumb question. Um, how do you vaccinate a queen? Yeah, so what they did, at least in um, in those initial studies, was they basically did um, inject the queens with heat killed spores of of American Fabric. So you know, kind of similar to what we would do with like a flu vaccine. Essentially, you're um, you're being injected with kind of a some bit of a virus, or you know, or some bit of right. a little bit of the pathogen itself that's not going to actually lead to an infection. Um, so it's a similar sort of process in that way. So I was just sitting there listening to you talk about American Falbert and I'm like, gosh, there's a lot of beekeepers listening to this podcast right now. And they're going, well, man, all we have to do is maybe get scientists to inject honeybee queens with dead versions of every disease <laughs> that we can think of. And maybe the offspring will be resistant. And then you mentioned right after that, that it's not working quite as well for European foul brood. And, and now I really kind of want to zero in on what you and your colleagues were looking at in the first place, which was specifically deformed wing virus. So I think a lot of beekeepers know about deformed wing virus. It's transmitted by Varroa and a lot of things that it does. 
But can you tell us a little bit about this virus to provide background for your experiment and, and as well as what we know about how it is normally transmitted to bees? All right, we chose deformed wing virus because it is the most prevalent virus to which all honeybees are exposed. You're right that it is primarily um, transmitted through varroa mites. And so when it's transmitted through varroa, the varroa are directly injecting it into bees, right? But queens aren't typically getting it from varroa. Uh, if they are getting it from varroa, the colonies are so sick um, that they're not going to survive or the queens typically wouldn't survive. However, um, deformed wing virus, like many other viruses, are also um, spread um, orally. So bees feed it to each other. So um, a nurse bee can feed it to a queen and, and nurse bees can feed it to other nurse bees. Um, they can feed it to larvae. Um, and um, the queen can also give it to um, her eggs. So the queen um, can pass it on um, sort of transoverally um, through her eggs. And then it, it can also be spread sexually. So drones can pass it on in, um, in their semen um, through the mating process. And that's one way that the queen then can also um, pass it through to her eggs. So it can spread through a colony through all of these different ways. And um, it can, it's infectious or it causes sort of symptoms at different degrees based on these sort of different infection routes. So um, if it's injected by Varroa, it's gonna cause more symptoms um, at a lower dose. Um, it takes a much higher dose um, to cause symptoms if it's sort of an, uh, orally transmitted. So that's always been a question that we discuss, you know, within our lab and with the grad students, it's just discussing Varroa and how it's transmitted. And it just seems like, you know, as you've said, it's like every single way possible. It could be spread, it, it can be spread and it will spread. And so it just seems like a lot of different avenues of examining this. And so can you tell us more about, you know, your methods for your project and how you conducted your experiment? Yeah. So for this, um, it did involve several different steps. Um, the first step was just trying to kind of get these sort of dosing situations right. And, um, but the, the main goal was to really replicate at least those two main ways that queens would be um, exposed to the virus sort of naturally. So we wanted to um, give the queens virus orally and then give the queens virus um, sort of through uh, the, a sexual um, infection route. So um, we exposed queens um, orally by mixing virus and sugar syrup, and then we hand fed them um, virus. Um, and then we mixed virus into 
uh, semen, and then this virus was um, given to them in that semen during um, the artificial insemination process. And then all of these queens were artificially inseminated with basically a big batch um, of a similar mix of, of semen. It was just some of that semen um, either had a virus mixed in it or not. Um, and again, because, um, you know, semen can have some virus mixed, you know, can have some virus in it, we wanted to make sure that they were, you know, essentially exposed to the same thing. So we, we basically collected semen from hundreds of drones, mixed it all up, and then split it up and mixed an additional amount of virus in some of it, um, and then gave that to some queens so that we had basically queens that were um, basically orally spiked with virus to replicate those that were given that oral dose of virus, and then ones that were venereally or sexually exposed to virus. And then um, we put all of those queens essentially into colonies, um, and then we, we followed them over time. And and then we collected those offspring, or we collected offspring from these colonies. And then we essentially exposed those offspring to virus later by injecting them um, with known amounts of virus. And then we looked at their um, offspring response to viral infection. And the paper that, um, that was published that we're talking about now is basically the um, the offspring response to virus coming up. We're we're finally getting to submit sort of the the corresponding paper that's looking at sort of that the field colony response. So something else to look forward to that's going to come up later. So, Mike, you were talking um, in your discussion about methods exactly about something that you know scientists would pick up on. Deformed wing virus is so widespread. It, you know, uh, how the offspring might have already been exposed to it. The queens that you used could have been exposed to it. You mentioned the oral exposure through sugar water. That That's pretty good. But I like this comment that you made about the fact that drone semen probably has DWV in it already. So even your negative controls, ones that you weren't spiking your virus, possibly could have had DWV in there. So how did you guys handle that? Did you look for DWV in your queens beforehand? Was there evidence of them already being exposed to it? I mean, I know that's why we have controls in the first place, but but how did you guys handle that experimentally? Yeah, so basically what we do is we have, we make everything relative to the controls um, and we, um, we did use um colonies that had low mites to begin with um, so that they have less background DWB. It's sort of the best case scenario that we can do. We did screen colonies at the beginning to try to select for colonies that did have low background DWB uh, infection. So we kind of try to control it as best that we can. But um, but yeah, there's only so much that you can do with background levels of DWB. And so um, you can make everything relative to that control group so that you're eliminating as much of that sort of background noise as you can. 
Yeah. And we know with honeybee research, there's a lot of background noise. Exactly. So can you tell us the results from your study? I'm, I'm eager to hear, um, you know, what you all found out from your research. Yeah. So the main finding really was that we did find that at least in one of these groups, um, so we had multiple queen sources that we tested, um, which is important to say that I didn't include sort of in this method. So we had actually um, three different queen sources that we tested um, that were infected um, or that were exposed to these viruses. And again, this sort of highlights sort of this context dependency um, of this viral transgenerational immune priming. So we did find this effect of transgenerational immune priming, particularly in one of these queen sources. So when, um, particularly in one of these queen sources, we found that offspring um, that were exposed um, in one of these conditions that they did seem to resist infection more effectively and um, showed um, reduced um, clinical symptoms. Um, and it's it was pretty cool to see that. Um, and it's interesting, again, because there's so much, so many different things happening and there's so many layers here that are happening um, because there's this kind of genetic component between the different queen sources, but then there's also the sort of oral versus sexual transmission um, route of infection that's happening. And, and it seems like one was more effective than the other uh, for this queen source. So um, there's just a lot of different things to follow up here um, that provide interesting avenues um, to study. So which method of priming actually made the biggest difference? Was it the oral priming or the, the instrumental insemination priming? Yeah, so it appeared at least in the one queen source that the, the venereal or the sexual um, exposure did knock down the amount of virus um, or, with, or the offspring had reduced virus in the one queen source um, compared to the oral infection. So... Again, I think it's important to note this is based on the conditions that we used in this experiment. So there's so many different things that need to be worked out, I think, for for these kind of um, sort of treatments, if they could be effective. And I think this highlights this is kind of the first step for this kind of work. And and I think true. It's kind of true with the American foul brood work, and and they've been working on this for years, and they still are. That there's um, so much work to be done in terms of the dose uh, and this sort of delivery, um, and you know, for the in terms of the delivery, like for the American foul brood work, right? They started out with injection, but as kind of you mentioned, Jamie. Like, does it make sense to just be injecting all of these sort of dead or live pathogens into our queens, right? Not really. Um, so how is it going to be best to deliver vaccines to our queens? And what's the way that makes the most sense if 
if this is going to be a tenable solution. Um, and in reality, we've learned so much about vaccines from a sort of a public viewpoint in the last two and a half years. And we know so much, um, again, just how much like the dose matters, right? And we've really used, uh, in terms of this experiment, um, one dose. And our timing of exposure um, and then our test, you know, we we did basically one time point and we saw these effects. So what would have happened if we had done multiple time points and um, and multiple doses? You know, experiments with queens take so much effort and so much time, um, you know, and, and queens are such sort of a hard resource to work with. Um, for some of these kinds of experiments that uh, you can only do so much. So, uh, but this result alone was super exciting. Um, and it, I think it really just shows that uh, kind of how much more work we need to do in terms of all of these sort of nuanced sort of information um, to really figure out um, some of these sort of minor, seemingly minor information, but that's sort of the important information that we need to know to see how effective this really could be. So Mike, you guys made us, a, 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 I'd call it a side comment in the manuscript that was really interesting uh, to us as we were reading the paper. You guys stated that all pupa, right? The resulting offspring from the queens that were exposed, all the pupa were inoculated equally, but only 60% showed clinical signs of infection. So um, does that mean that in a normal situation, 40% can withstand or are resistant to the virus? And, and is this what others have shown similarly in the literature? Yeah, so the tolerance and resistance question is a good one. So I would say that range is probably within the scope of what's been shown in the literature, but um, honestly, it ranges really um, greatly across colonies. Um, and so certainly it's going to range, um, it can really range from zero to 100% uh, with clinical signs, particularly um, depending on how susceptible colonies are. And sometimes you can see resistance and sometimes you can see tolerance. Um, I think from some of the work um, that I've done now more recently with viral work, I think we're skewing a lot to seeing more commonly um, tolerance of virus infection. So what tolerance means is that bees are able to basically handle um, a high viral load so they can um, live with a higher viral infection, whereas um, resistance means that they are able to actually combat the infection and um, reduce that viral load. Um, so I do think we see, um, we tend to see a, a little bit more tolerance um, than resistance. Um, and that um, that we can see, but I do think it's common um, to see kind of, especially at the this infection dose that we use, that you can see um, kind of this 
this sort of 60% range showing clinical signs would be normal. And that was kind of a, a dose that we wanted so that we would see um, a, a variation. Now, if you're going to inject them with a high dose of virus, you're going to see 100% clinical signs. Um, you know, so it kind of does depend, you know, the, the dose. Um, if you're going to pick a high dose to inject them with, you're going to get, um, you know, clinical signs or death and all the bees. You know, it's just even within the past couple of years and hearing about viruses and different clinical signs and symptoms in, in people, right. And in honeybees, it's just really fascinating to hear some of the research that's been going on for a while. Um, and, and I think a lot of us understand a little bit more about vaccines and viruses and ways that they can be transmitted. So I feel like this has just been a really great, um, an article and a really great conversation in general about, you know, that topic. Um, so I have the last question and it is, what does this all mean for beekeepers? So, you know, as a beekeeper, what should we be considering or is there anything that we can do? Yeah. You know, I think in terms of the larger picture and, and one of these things that I'm sure that I probably ended the last time I talked about this uh, or the last time I talked with you. So forgive me if this is my soapbox, but uh, I do think to me, the most important thing that we can do is really help support the bees uh, in the ways that they, you know, sort of support themselves and support their natural defenses. And uh, to me, the most exciting thing about bees is the fact that they have all of these amazing traits and all of these amazing defenses that you know, to fight off all of their pathogen parasites. And we have so much more work to do to understand these things. I mean, who knew that that they're able to pass on sort of these immune defenses from sort of queen, um, you know, through to the eggs, right? And so if this is just one of their tools in their toolkit or, you know, something that they have in their arsenal, but, um, but that there is this sort of context dependency or that um, or that maybe there's some genetic genetic component to um, how they express this trait um, that we need to explore um, or that we can support um, you know either passively or actively then you know then we need to pursue that um, but trying to figure out, sort of these nuances, um, I think is important, but really trying to figure out and kind of sort of the, the small picture, but also think of the big picture and, and really just um, working to, to support our healthy bees and, and seeing why, you know, why these colonies are, are the, the healthy survivor ones um, and versus the other ones, I think is important, but but really, I think, you know, really supporting those, um, those behaviors, those physiological traits, um, I think to me is really the, the key to um, sustainable uh, and healthy beekeeping. Um, it's not the only thing, um, but, I, but I think it, it's a long way to go um, that, that we can really help the bees help themselves. So, Mike, that was great. I know our listeners are going to want to know a lot more about this research project. So I want to tell all of you out there that we're making sure to link this manuscript in our show notes. 
Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the time you spent telling us about your research. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Everyone, that was Dr. Mike Simone Finstrom, who's a research molecular biologist at the USDA ARS Honeybee Breeding Laboratory and Physiology Laboratory in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Thank you for listening to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. You know, Jamie, I feel like I'm still just trying to comprehend like the viruses being transmitted throughout the colony, you know, like the different ways of exposures, the different routes of exposures. It's really kind of complicated and scary. You know, when we talk about like DWV, we think, well, Varroa is the primary mover of this virus, but mm-hmm. he, he said himself that there's oral, there's sexually transmitted disease, right? right. The drones can pass this to queens and so queens can pass it to their eggs. It's just crazy to think about how once a virus gets into a colony, it can show up everywhere. And the neat thing that he said too about that is that uh, the way that it's passed seems to matter, right? right. So if the mm-hmm. vi- if the Varroa is doing it, it really makes DWV nasty. But right. if some of these other routes are doing it, then maybe it's not quite as bad. It's almost like the different routes of exposures have like different dilutions, you know, like the orally versus the instrumentally inseminated. Like, I thought that was so cool that, you know, they're able to add viruses into it, but it still affects and it had different results based on those different routes. Yeah. So this idea of transgenerational immune immune priming, basically it means the immune system is being primed to Mm -hmm. address something. And in this case, it's not you being exposed directly to it. It's your queen mother being exposed to it that benefits you. And it was interesting, just like you said, that if she was exposed orally, like she consumed the virus versus if she received it through artificial insemination, which is essentially trying to um, replicate how she would receive it um, during copulation. So if she received it orally or during copulation, it mattered downstream how resistant to or tolerant of the virus that these offspring were. It's really kind mm-hmm. of fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is this commonly done? And in, in, I mean, like, who else studies this? Like, is yeah. this common in insects or is this like just a honeybee thing? Yeah. One of the things that he mentioned earlier, like in the interview was really intriguing to me that, that people sort of look at this with humans, it's gaining traction, mm-hmm. but with insects, they know so much less about trans- transgenerational immune priming. And, you know, he gave us that great example of American fowl brood is kind of how it was discovered in the first place. Right. And so now at this point, it's just like, well, what about to European fowl brood? No. Oh, okay. Well, what about deformed wing virus? Yes. Well, what about Israeli acute paralysis mm-hmm. virus or mm-hmm. chronic bee paralysis virus or nosema disease? So there's really a lot of ways that this can go. And hey, you know, the way he concluded his topic for beekeepers, his comment for beekeepers is we need to figure out what bees do to fight these things naturally and see if we can enhance it. And his comment is like, hey, this is a way that bees potentially fight DWV. If we can understand the system better, maybe we can enhance it to the benefit of bee health. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that's really interesting is that uh, I've I've heard you give a talk about, you know, the different stressors of honeybees and how queens are really blamed for a lot of what goes on in the colony, right? You've got a bad layer or your queen's not laying the way that you want her to be laying or, 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 or there are lots of things. And, you know, in this, in this case, um, you know, she really could be benefiting some of the other offspring, right? Potentially. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really intriguing to me, this idea that a parent's exposure 
to a pathogen benefits the offspring mm-hmm. through this method. So in this case, the queen can be benefiting her workers just because she's had previous exposure, prior exposure to this pathogen. You're right. Queens are blamed for a lot of things, but here's a really neat example of how uh, to flip that script where she's actually benefiting her offspring. And I'm the whole time I'm sitting here thinking, I was like, well, Queens exposure can transgenerationally, oh, that's such a hard word, <laughs> transgenerationally prime the immune system of our offspring. But what about the contributing father? What if drone exposure to these things also makes a difference? So this sounds like one of those areas of research just just wide open. Yep. I can't wait to see what he publishes down the road. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Welcome back to the question and answer time. Jamie, one of our listeners has a question about mini mating nukes, and they were saying mini mating nukes seem to be all the rage now, but some beekeepers are saying that it's not possible to get a quality queen from such a small nuke. Um, They're specifically talking about that tiny three frame polystyrene mating nukes. So do you have any thoughts on this? Is there any research? I think it's like a really common practice, right? To have uh, mini mating nukes. So this is an interesting question, and I, and I don't know if I'm reading between the lines appropriately to answer it, but but you know all mating nukes to me are very small, and mm-hmm. I think they're talking about a specific brand of styrofoam that's that's maybe particularly small, but to me they're all kind of like super tiny anyway, right. and I I don't know that there's a big enough range between the smallest of mini mating nukes and the largest of mini mating nukes for it to really make that big of a deal in the queen mating world. So let me, let me just elaborate just briefly on this for the benefit of the listener. You know, we, we use the word nuke to describe a nucleus colony, but a nuke can accommodate full size frames that would otherwise go in a full size hive. Mm -hmm. So basically a nuke is just a smaller version than a full size hive only in the sense that it accommodates fewer frames than a full size hive does. Whereas a mating nuke doesn't accommodate the same size frames as a full-size hive at all. You can't take frames from a full-size hive and put into a mating nuke Mm -hmm. because the mating nukes don't accommodate them. They're genuinely smaller boxes. And the reason queen breeders use these is that it's easier for queen breeders to have hundreds or thousands of these things to put queen cells into than it is for them to have full-size nukes or full-size hives. It just takes less equipment, less space. It's easier to manage, et cetera. So these mating nukes by default are very small. And there's not much standardization across queen breeders with regard to mating nukes because they tend to make their own, right? The, The ones that are available in the equipment catalogs aren't even standardized across companies or across styles. Whereas I can buy a a nuke from company A and company B and company C, and they're going to all accommodate the same size frames. You can't do that with mating nukes because there's just a general lack of standardization. So they're small by default. They're small by design. And, you know, there, there is some scaling within the mating nuke world from smaller mini mating nukes to larger mini mating nukes. But I think from a functionality standpoint, you know, you're going to be you know, almost equally successful producing queens and all of them. And I know that that there are some folks who say that queens are better if they're produced in full-size hives. 
And I could see a little bit of an argument for that. But if that were true, you know, that would, we, our entire industry would have to change because queen breeders mm-hmm. almost always use these kind of mini mating nukes. So I'd have to see some data on that to support the idea that queens are worse coming from the smaller end of those mini mating nukes versus the larger end, because from my perspective, they're all kind of small. Right. And so right. It's, it's, it's hard for me to see that argument. Well, you also kind of wonder, you know, with the queens, whether or not they need a certain amount of space, right? I mean, not only like to just emerge from and be in, but then also coming back. I mean, is, are they using up that much space and are they going to swarm as soon as they get back? Honestly, Amy, what I saw um, in the research is less about the size of the hive, but more Mm -hmm. about how long the queen is allowed to lay post mating in that right. mating nuke. And I, I'm right. scared to speculate, but there is a reason because I don't remember the paper exactly, but there is a paper out there that showed um, the, that queens who are allowed to remain in mating nukes X amount of time are much better than those that are allowed to remain in mating nukes a shorter hmm. period of time. And I forget what it is, right. but it's something like, you know, if you put a queen cell into a mating nuke, generally the queen is going to emerge within a week. She goes out and mates the next two weeks and then she um, is, it lays eggs. Some folks will say you don't just need to grab a queen from a mating nuke. The moment you see eggs and cells, you need to give her a few weeks after that because research has shown when she crosses that few weeks threshold that she's going to be better as a queen than if you just yanked her right out of that car right. the moment you saw egg. And I forget what it is. That's why I'm scared to put a number on it, but it seems like it was something like, uh, 35 days that after 35 days, you've maximized how good they can be. And and then you'll take them out at that point versus something like two days after mm-hmm, you see mm-hmm, her. Mm-hmm. So again, I hesitate to say that it was 35 days, but there is definitely a research to show that there, there seems to be a, a, a week that matters versus a size that matters. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so for the second question, so the second question, I actually receive this question pretty often and it's, it's, it has to do with population control for a backyard beekeeper. So this beekeeper wants to maintain three to five colonies and how do we keep this population somewhat constant, right? So you're always kind of growing and losing and growing and shrinking. And that's just kind of how the beekeeping world works, right? So how, I mean, could this, could this person make splits? make nukes, give them, sell them away. Is that your recommendation? Is culling splits hive an acceptable best practice, or is that something that's kind of frowned upon? How do we stick to the number that we want to stick to? Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is a super important question because Mm -hmm. honeybees are addictive and, and what you'll find, especially if you live in an area that's very productive, bees make bees. And so what you're going to do is you're going to have three colonies and they're going to grow super massive. And if you're in a nectiferous area, you're going to produce a ton of honey and you're going to say, oh gosh, my bees are so strong. The honey flows over, but my bees are so strong. What do I do? I don't want more hives. How do I stop where I am? Well, remember, you know, there's a couple of things that are worth knowing here. Number one, Generally speaking, in order to make honey, you're going to have to practice swarm control. So you can just keep practicing swarm control and the colony population is naturally going to dwindle over spring, sorry, over summer and over fall. And they're going to carry the right number of bees with them through winter. So essentially you could just do nothing and the population will naturally shrink on its own. That 
That's harder to do if you sit, if you live in a subdivision and you're looking out the back window and you see these colonies that have massive beards on the colonies and it's early summer and you're like, oh my gosh, I've got so many bees. I'm not going to make any more honey. What should I do with all these bees? Well, you could still do nothing and population is going to naturally dwindle on its own. But some folks have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit spirit, and they'll go, hmm, I'm not going to make any more honey in summer but I've got all these bees. Let me make a nuke off of all three of those colonies. So three nukes and maybe sell them to, or give them away. You know, that's another option. I actually faced the same issue when I was keeping bees in my backyard up where I live now coming out of spring, it, the colony populations were very strong. And so what I did is I would just shake queenless packages and donate those queenless packages here to the bee lab just to beef up some of our research colonies. I'm not suggesting that all of you guys out there listening want to do that. <laughs> We're going to have so many exactly. people donating. But, but what I was saying is, you know, I, queenless packages could be sold to people to beef up their colony strength. So you've got a few options. You could do nothing and the bee populations are going to go through the natural cycle and they'll dwindle when they need to dwindle. You can split and make nukes and sell those nukes, or you can split and increase your colonies. But a lot of people just want to make sure that they stay at that one colony level, in which case, if you split, you've got to sell. And really, those are kind of your options. And it's hard because as a beekeeper, if everything's going well, you've got that just natural desire to make more bees, but you just have to fight it off and just know that if you do nothing at all, you know, you manage diseases and food, of course, but if you do nothing otherwise, there, there, there'll be natural population control in the hive as the colony goes through summer and fall. All right. So the third question is this person's wondering if they can feed their bees without a super. So for example, in early spring, and then later add the supers during the nectar flow. So they're wondering if the syrup that's stored from what they fed could be moved around the hive or eventually end up in their honey. Is that possible? And, and like, I guess do bees go and take sugar water, put it in a comb and then eat it again and move it around? So there is ample anecdotal, at least evidence that honeybees will move nectar and or honey around the hive. And so I, I suppose this questioner is worried that if they're feeding bees sugar syrup in a single, say, deep hive body with no other super zone, and then they stop. And when they add supers and bees start making honey and filling it to those supers, is there any chance that that sugar water that they fed will end up in those super. So of course there's a chance, right? I mean, there's a chance that it will be blended into the honey that's coming in uh, by the bees themselves. But honestly, that's something that's really negligible and not something that I worry about really at all. The general recommendation is to not feed bees when bees are making, actively making marketable honey. When you have honey super zone that exist for the purpose of collecting and harvesting the honey. So what I would say to this is feeding outside of the honey flow and stopping before the honey flow gives you a pretty negligible residue. I'll, I'll call it a residue, a negligible amount of sugar water or corn syrup that would end up in your marketable honey. It mm -hmm. will be in there. Bees can move it around, but it's negligible and not something about what you would worry. I mean, commercial beekeepers do this all the time and don't worry. So the key is, is just don't feed during active during an active nectar flow. And honestly, if you're if you're feeding in advance of the major nectar flow, the bees are turning a lot of that uh, sugar water into energy to prepare for the coming nectar flow. They're converting it into new bees. They're building new comb. And I just, I really think the movement of nectar 
the movement of sugar water around into your honey supers is going to be so negligible that you shouldn't really worry about it much at all. The key is just don't feed while you have supers right. on that bees are going to be putting honey into. Is it true that they would prefer the natural pollen and nectar sources out there versus the supplemental? Yeah. I mean, you see this time and time and time again, if you're feeding bees, when the major nectar flow starts, you'll often see bee use of that sugar water that you're feeding them plummet. And by that, I mean, mm -hmm. they take it out of the jars or the feeders much slower than they would if there is um, no nectar coming right. in at all. And so they, they tend to shift. I mean, it's not a complete elimination. They will still take that sugar that's in their hive in their feeder, but it, it is a significant reduction. So bees, there, there's some, there seems to be some sort of little biological trigger that's satisfied in bees when they go collect the nectar themselves rather than being fed it directly with sugar syrup. So that, that definitely seems to be an impact. All right. So those are the questions. If you all have any more questions, please feel free to email us um, or send us a message on our social media pages. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at ufhoneybeelab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Vu. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Vu and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.